0: My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's, uh, it's good to be with you. We're starting a new series this evening in First Thessalonians. And uh, if you're new, we tend to go through books of the Bible, though if you've been here only for the last four or five months, you wouldn't know it uh, because we did a summer series uh, called Doctrine where we studied uh, doctrine and, uh, and, then, and then did a brief little five, six-week series called Scandalous where we looked at uh, some of the more Difficult sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. And so um, it's good to be back in a book. So uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand and the guys will bring you a Bible. If uh, you don't own a Bible, then keep this one. It's yours. If you do own one, uh, then uh, give it back. Uh, There's a cart on the way out. Just just pop it on that cart. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is in your New Testament. It's a very small book. Um, comes after Colossians, First Thessalonians chapter one, verse one. I was uh, walking from the ASU domination. Um, it was seriously embarrassing. Uh, I, I've never seen a, a Pac-10 team that bad. Uh, but anyway, it was fun. And so uh, I was walking back to my truck and uh on on one of the corners fifth and mill um there was some people handing out you know they're always handing out ray flyers and whatever they're doing and uh there was some some guys handing out uh, little bottles of like energy uh like a five hour energy but a generic four and a half hour energy or something and uh <laughs> And against my better judgment, I took it, and, uh, you know, he assured me it was, it was good. Uh, it was his, I don't know, he said it was his special concoction. He made it in his van, or I, I don't know. And, uh, and so I took one before the five, and uh, it said on the bottle, improves performance. And so I'm like, sermon's going to be good. And, uh, and the five was really, really good. And so uh, just, just be ready for that. Um at this one. Okay, so First Thessalonians chapter one, verse one. Starts this way. It says Paul, and we're gonna stop there. In fact that's all we're gonna do in First Thessalonians. Um <laughs> This evening, I'm not kidding. Um, we're looking at First Thessalonians. What we realized is uh, that we talk a lot about this Paul guy, and uh, in our in our moments of greatest description, sometimes call him the Apostle Paul, which is is for many of you even more meaningless. And so um, we thought, well, let's take a minute and just tell a little bit about who this Paul guy is in light of the fact that he wrote half the New Testament. Um, we talk about him all the time. He wrote First Thessalonians. And, and I think, if we're honest, this is a question I receive a lot, is, is why would we listen to Paul? Right? like I get Jesus, I'll listen to Jesus, Jesus seems great, he, you know, we walked on water, I'll listen to that guy, um, but at the end of the day, like, why, why would I listen to Paul, who is this Paul, why do I hear so much about Paul, and, and why did we let him write half the New Testament, and did he walk on water, and no, and, uh, and, and why would Christians, which we do theologically, um, give the same weight to Paul's letters as we do Jesus' words described and um, recorded in, in the gospel? So, who is this guy? And so, I think um, a really good, honest question that we can ask of the scriptures is, why should we listen to Paul? Why why should we listen to this guy? Okay. And so, because many of you would go, I have no idea who Paul is, and and many more would go, I have no idea who Paul is, but I'm not going to say that to anybody, um, we, we thought, let's take a week... And, and talk about who Paul was, um, what he did, and why in the world um, we would give him the weight of, of his letters being the very words of God, which Christians have believed for two millennia now, right? Why? What is it about this guy that would cause his peers, his contemporaries, um, and really you could argue his main rival, Peter, um, to, to write that Paul's words are Scripture? that Paul's words have the same power as the Old Testament. Like, why, what would drive a person to say that? Because my guess is, even the most godly, committed Christians that you know, you wouldn't say that the letters they write are the words of God, right? So what would drive someone like Peter and, and Paul's contemporaries, the people around him, and the church for 2,000 years to go, no, 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 this guy, um, his letters are the very words of God and equal in weight and power to the Old Testament, to Jesus' words, and the rest of the apostles. So that's the question, and to answer it, um, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 3. So it's not far from 1 Thessalonians. In fact, in my Bible, it's three pages. Um, So if you go back, you go Colossians, which is short, and then Philippians. If you're moving to the left, Um, and we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Philippians 3. So Paul, um, I think you could argue... Uh, was the most influential human on on Christian theology, unpacks the nuances of of the implications of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, more so than anybody else, has shaped Christian theology really extensively, Um, is is one of the most powerful voices in the Scriptures, Um, has written half the New Testament, Um, was single, Right, Whether he was widowed or his wife abandoned him when he uh, became a believer, we're not sure. Um, but, but evidence suggests that he was a single man um, and, and has written many of these books, Philippians being one of them, which he wrote from prison. So, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So apparently these things have been discussed before amongst Paul and the Philippians. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh... For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, if you are new to Christianity, um, you might think that there is a disturbing amount of talk in the Bible about circumcision. And, and, and you're right. Like, it, from our perspective, like, that makes no sense at all. There, it does talk about circumcision a lot, a lot more than you do in your general conversation, I hope okay? Um, and, and for us, there is little or no uh, spiritual significance in our culture to, to circumcision. For us, it's a purely physical thing. It's done for whatever kind of reasons you would have. Um, my son, who was recently born, was circumcised. I wasn't there for it. I got a little dad guilt on that, but, uh, but just don't tell him and he'll never know. Uh, but for, for most of you, there is no spiritual significance to circumcision, and if there is, that's, that's just pretty weird, okay? And so uh, for Paul, though, um, and for the Jews in general, there's massive significance, spiritual significance, and if I can sum it up far quicker than, than it deserves, um, in the Old Testament, God gave circumcision to the Israelites um, as, as an outward sign of their commitment and their relationship with him in covenant that they would be God's People, and one of the outward evidences of that would be that the the young men, the boys, on their eighth day would be circumcised. And so, what, what happens is, fast forward to the first century, and one of the big arguments in the early church is whether or not Gentile believers, non Jewish believers, when they become Christians, need to get circumcised. And for the most part, the Jewish Christians are going, Well, yeah, that's what it means to be part of the people of God, and of course they have to be circumcised. And Men like Paul and others go, no, no, no that's not our covenant anymore. That's not our deal. We're not not Jews anymore. We're under a new covenant. We're under Christ. And so there's definitely a a theological argument about why um, these adult men don't need to be circumcised. And I would guess that there was a practical argument of like, come on, that's super mean. And so um, I would would guess that. So that was a a big argument in the early church um, about how many of these Jewish customs would be adopted into Christianity. And so when Paul writes, we who believe the gospel put no confidence in the flesh, a piece of that has to do with circumcision, but it's also far broader than that because what came along with circumcision was also kind of a a general moralism, a general trust in our ability to be righteous, to be good people. So the Jews would look at this long list of things they ought to do or ought not do, and would go, oh, okay, well, I'm doing pretty good. And so the flesh was this kind of junk drawer term that included all of the good things we did, all the bad things we avoided, and then kind of our gifts and talents and abilities, basically all the things that we have some control over, right? And Paul goes, listen, if we get the gospel, then we believe that it's not about what we can do, it's about what Christ already did, that's where our confidence is. But he says, if you want to go there, if you want to compare churchiness, if you want to compare your Jewishiness to mine, that's fine, we can do that. And in, in, a, in a passage I really enjoy because um, Paul is sarcastic and kind of ironic. There's a little bit of a dig there, which, which I enjoy when he does that because it, it validates me. Um, uh, he, he says this, verse four. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has, has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul goes, listen, we, we don't believe that, that your fleshly stuff, the, your moralism, the good things you do, the bad things you avoid, your gifts and talents and abilities, what you've accomplished in the world, we don't believe that means anything. But if you want to go there and you want to make this a church off, I'll out-church you all day long. He says, I've got a way better church resume than you do. So anybody that wants to come, we'll have a one-on-one church battle. I'm your guy. I'll take you down. And he gives us the why. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is the right day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Like most of that means nothing to you, but if you were there and he ran off that list in a churchy battle, people'd be like, "Oh, dang! Paul just threw down, right?" Like that would that would just be like Paul dominating on the on the church end, right? Like just like whoa, dropping it. That'd be like me going. We go, well, my daddy was a preacher, and my mommy was a missionary, and my grandparents were missionaries, my great-grandparents invented Bible studies, and and my great-great-grandparents were the first Christians in America, and I invented WWJD bracelets, and 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 I had an armful of them, and I have left behind, memorized, and like right, like if I wanted to to win a church battle, that's what I'd drop on you. All right. And and that's essentially what Paul does here. That's what, that, he goes, okay, you want to care about churchy stuff? I'll out church you all day long. I don't care about this stuff, and I don't think God cares about this stuff, but if that's where you want to go, if that's where you want to start this conversation, I will whoop you, okay? And he does, pretty much whoops everybody. So this is where Paul's story begins, right? And this is who he was. And, and really speaks loudly to why we should listen to Paul. So to get some more of that, that history, let's go to the book of Acts, chapter seven. Acts is the fifth book in your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts was written by Luke as an account of the early church to tell the story of how the gospel spread through um, the, the Middle East the missionary journeys and the church planting and all the good stuff that was going on. In chapter 7, we see, um, for the most part, we're going to pick it up in verse 54, right at the end of um, one of the greatest sermons recorded in the Scripture, a man named Stephen, who in the narrative was just um, installed as a deacon, a leader in the church, and he was an evangelist and a preacher, and he gets arrested um, and brought before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body, gets brought before the Sanhedrin um, on charges of blasphemy, essentially, and what, when they give him a chance to speak, lays down this amazing sermon where he starts at the beginning of Jewish history and connects all of it all the prophets and all the patriarchs and all their history to Jesus and then ends with and you killed the Messiah his blood is on your hands which which just never ends well and uh and so verse 54 we pick up it says now when they heard these things they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is where Paul's story starts. As a man named Saul, and we see as the narrative unfolds and he gets saved, he changes his name from Saul to Paul. But this is where his story begins. As a devout Jew, rising in the ranks, rising in influence, rising in power, kind of a, a young up-and-comer amongst the Pharisees, which were the most powerful class of Jews, most, the most devoted, the most fundamentalist of the Jews. And he was rising up in power. He was so um, zealous. In fact, in Philippians 3, he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. And zeal is one of these really interesting words. I I would call it a two-handed word. It is at the same time a great passion and love for the things that God loves, and at the same time a great hatred and disgust for the things that God hates. And at that point, Paul saw this church of Jesus being one of the things God hates. And so he hated what he believed God hated, and so he persecuted the church. This is not a dude who just kind of said, no, 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 I, don't, I believe those guys are wrong. This is a guy who actively was ravaging the church, according to Acts 7. Ravaging the church, hunting down men and women who believed in Jesus. And this is where his story starts. It continues in chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do the men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened he saw nothing so they led him by the hand and brought him into damascus and for 3 days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank one of the reasons that we give weight to the words of paul is because of his testimony it's the first thing his testimony is really profound This is not a guy who goes, well, I grew up in the church, and I kind of liked the church, and my parents took me to church, and I just kind of never stopped going to church, and so now I still like the church. This is a guy who said, I hated the church. I, I, I breathed out murderous threats against the church. I literally oversaw the execution of church leaders. But then I met Jesus, and everything changed. Everything changed. 180 degree turn unbelievable. I, I, I for once saw the reality of who God was, and it fundamentally changed my life. That's got to mean something. There's, there's evidence of a changed life. There's evidence of God revealing himself to Paul in a, in a, in a significant way, in a, in a way that is probably more so than any of us have experienced. There is some purpose that God had for this man, Paul, and we'll see. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. There's something really important about that. That God would look out over all of his creation and pick out the man who might be the least likely candidate to be God's Chosen instrument to bring the gospel to Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. I I, I read this passage and it inspires me. I read that and I go, I want to be this guy. I want to be one of those people that God looks down and goes, I I choose you for this moment and this time and these people to do this thing. And however unlikely you may be, now I I haven't killed as many Christians as Paul, so I may not be as unlikely, but nonetheless, to go, you are my guy for this moment, for this time. I I want to be that guy. And And in a very real sense, I am and we are. I mean, the scriptures tell us over and over and over, you have been placed where you are with your people at this moment for reasons. That you are a person that believes in the gospel, that demonstrates, proclaims the gospel. You have been placed in a specific place at a specific time with specific abilities to communicate to the people around you. This inspires me. This 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 makes me think that there's maybe a real purpose for us. And I'll tell you, after ten years of ministry, there is no question I have heard more, whether it be from eighteen-year-olds trying to pick a college, to twenty-five-year-olds trying to figure out what it is to be an adult, to fifty-year-olds trying to figure out their midlife crisis, who have all asked the same question: What do I do with my life? What am I supposed to do? Where am I going? One of, one of the greatest blessings that I've ever received in my life is that as a 16-year-old, I knew God wanted me to be a pastor. Now, I, I thought there'd be a brief to extended baseball career in the middle of there, but nonetheless. I, I knew it, and, and, and I look back on that, because from 16, I could set my trajectory and go, that's where I'm going, so I need to do these things. And I, I see so many who are kind of wandering and kind of don't know, and, and you're trying to figure it out, I get it. Paul had a very specific calling, a very specific purpose. That that calling lends weight to his words. I was very excited about verse 15 until I read verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Never mind. I'm I'm good uh, without that calling thing. Uh, There's... There is, it seems, a direct correlation between the, the degree or the specificity of a person's calling or the degree to which they are, they are actually living that calling and the amount of suffering that comes along with it for, for many reasons, one of which is what Pastor Ricardo talked about last week, that we have an enemy that goes, oh, well, that's what you're going to do? You're going to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel to Gentiles? Great. I'm going to ruin your life. And, and Paul endured incredible amount of suffering, being shipwrecked, having his life almost taken from him on multiple levels, being imprisoned, being beaten, being run out of town. This is a man who endured great suffering, and yet in, in the midst of it all, always stayed faithful to that calling that was so clear, so clear. Verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Um, At this point, if you continue to read, it says that that Paul immediately became an evangelist. And though he knew a lot of Old Testament theology, he didn't know a ton about Jesus at this point, but, but he told people what he knew and he told them about what Jesus had done to him. He, he, he said what, whatever it was he knew. But, but there's a huge gap between this moment where, where Saul gets saved and, and him being the Paul we all know that went on three missionary journeys, that planted all these churches, that did all, all of what he did. There's a, there's a huge gap in between this moment and, and the Paul that we know. And in fact, the uh, Tyndale Bible Dictionary explains that gap this way says, then began a period of preparation for Paul, which lasted about 13 years. During this time, Paul first was in the desert of Arabia for three years. Here was his opportunity to pray and reflect on Stephen's defense to the Sanhedrin, the momentous significance of his conversion, the vision he received of Jesus Christ, and the meaning of all this in light of Jewish theology. Following this, Paul returned to Damascus and then visited Peter in Jerusalem for 15 days. The end of Paul's preparation came when Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for him and bring him to Antioch. By this time, Paul had lived for 10 years in Cilicia. This is a man who spent 13 years preparing for the ministry that God had for him. I'll say it this way. There's no one who's good at anything. There is no one who's good at anything that didn't prepare. But there is an extreme amount of work and maturity and preparation that Paul puts in. That God goes, you're my guy. You're my guy for the Gentiles. And I know you're excited about this calling. And I know you've had this crazy experience, but not yet. There needs to be preparation, and he takes him out into the desert and prepares him, trains him, teaches him. He's interacting with Christians, learning about the life of Jesus, learning about what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. He's learning those things from the people who were there, and he's thinking and he's processing, and God's revealing truth to him for 13 years. And then when he comes back, the people are they're suspicious, and rightly so. These Christians are looking at him going, we're supposed to trust that guy? He killed our families. He imprisoned our friends. He wreaked havoc on our community. We're supposed to believe that that guy had an experience with Jesus? That preparation softened him and humbled him and prepared him to come back into that Christian community and to be a leader. And it didn't take long. It didn't take long for people to see not just his calling, not just his testimony, not just his preparation, but his fruit, his fruit in ministry, that he, he wasn't just this guy who got excited about, excited about Jesus and did a couple things and then backed off, but he endured, and for decades after getting saved, planted churches, raised up disciples. When he preached, people got saved. He raised up great leaders like Timothy and Titus, He went on three missionary journeys. He wrote letters back to the churches that he planted, and those churches cherished those letters because of the time they spent with him. They knew his heart. In fact, we're going to read in that in 1 Thessalonians next week, that they knew who he was, and they loved him, and they trusted him because he bore fruit in ministry. He proved himself as a pastor. And so when these people received letters from him, it wasn't just a random letter from a random guy. They went, this is Paul, whom we love, whom we know speaks with power, whom we know is godly, and they cherished him and they passed him around to the point that everyone knew that Paul's words, Paul's letters, were the words of God, and they treated him as such. The people that were his peers. Peter writes to his churches that were following him, going, listen, I know Paul's hard to understand, but he's writing scripture. Peter, his His main rival, the guy he butts heads with the most is going, man, Paul's crazy, but God's on him. God's doing something in him. There was unbelievable fruit in his ministry. Now, his testimony is fantastic. His calling is clear. His preparation was unbelievable. His ministry record is is spotless. But there's one thing that I, I think gives the most weight to answer that question of why we should trust Paul, and that's back in Philippians 3. And that's his message. I think Philippians 3 um, is a good summation of of Paul's overarching message. And it's um, totally impossible and and probably completely foolish to try to sum up all of Paul into one main idea. Um, So here we go. Uh, Verse four. Though I myself, again, have no reason, or have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, but whatever gain I had, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection of the dead See this moment happened in paul's life after he had compiled all of this power and influence and and probably wealth and certainly reputation all of the things that, that we are longing for and striving for and making sacrifices for. All, all the things that, that we are searching for the, for the things that every, every human soul is searching for. Things like love and peace and joy and satisfaction. And we are looking to power and reputation and wealth and influence to, to satisfy those deep longings in our soul. And there came a point where Paul said, I saw Jesus... And in that moment, when I saw Jesus, everything else in my life looked like garbage to me. Not that it was garbage. Get this. Paul never says that power and influence and wealth and reputation, he never says those are bad things. There's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, have them, get them, they're good. But he goes, in in view of Jesus, by comparison, this looks like garbage. I, I find a measure of joy and peace and love and satisfaction in these things, but compared to what I find in Christ, it pales. So probably very few of us have experienced Jesus in the, in the remarkable way that Paul has, but every one of us has experienced this idea. In fact, we do all the time. So anytime we get something new, whether it be a car or a home or a, technological device or a relationship it is so shiny and new and awesome and we want to be near it all the time so we we get our little phone and we got it all we're always getting apps and, and doing all the things that we got to do on it we get our new car and we're just driving it for no reason and we get a new girlfriend and we forget that we have friends for three months and you know that that whole that whole deal and then and then something happens where it begins to get old and begins to age, and then the new one comes out. And you go, "Oh, this is the whole seduction of Apple products, (laughs) right? You've got a a fancy pants phone, and then the new one comes out, and you go, oh, my phone's three months old now, and and that phone does one more thing than this phone. This is disgusting. have to have this one and that that's that that's how they they just they just suck you in that way and so you're constantly wanting more and wanting more and wanting more because what is new what is better makes what is old and lesser seem old and lesser and that's all paul's saying here is this isn't bad but in comparison to that in comparison to knowing jesus yeah this seems like garbage to me so personal illustration um, when my wife and I were dating, on, on one of our first dates, we, we spent a lot of time together before our first date because I was a pastor and she was in my college ministry, which was questionable, and um, <laughs> and so I had to be pretty certain that uh, that I wanted to date her, and I was. I was certain I wanted to marry her, actually, and wrote that down and sealed it and gave it to somebody. It was very romantic. And. Uh, And so one of the very first times we we hung out, in fact, I love telling this story because it makes me look really good and romantic. And uh, we, we were on Sunset Cliffs in San Diego where we both lived. If you've ever been to Sunset Cliffs, it's incredible. These sheer cliffs, the ocean, just, you know, the waves crashing. And it's just perfect. It's just perfect. Aside from the cliff rats, it's It's ideal. And uh, and we're standing there, and, and I tell her, I said, and this was from the heart, totally pure. I mean, I, I thought of it, and and I thought of it before, and I wanted to tell her this, and it's it was awesome and from my heart, but it was totally a line. And I and I said, I said when I'm with you, everything else seems like it's in black and white, and you're in color. And she was like, oh. and I went, Psh. you know, it's just. Yeah, it, it was amazing, and uh, and that, you know we were watching a movie a couple years later, and they used that line. I'm like, stole it from me. <laughs> but that's how I felt, and, and that's how I still feel. The, the, I mean, the, the, there was a moment when she walked into my life and was like, wow, a woman can be like that. That's fantastic. I had no idea. This is great. And and everything else faded away. And she became my sole focus in in that realm. and, And that was, it was amazing. It's the closest thing I can, I have experienced to what Paul's talking about. To go, I had this experience of Christ that in view of Christ, everything else looked like garbage to me. Everything else just paled in comparison. So if I can sum up all of Paul's message into one line, it'd be this nothing is better than jesus nothing nothing is better than jesus now some of you do not buy that whatsoever and i get that some of you will continue to pursue what you're pursuing and 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 i get that you're you're going listen money and power, and position, and stuff, and wh- whatever it is. All, all these things that you are, are striving for to satisfy what your soul longs for, what every soul was designed to long for, love, and peace, and joy, and satisfaction, you will continue to look to these things. And, and I'll, I'll, this, is just, this is just my opinion, so it's right. Um, but the only people who believe that money will satisfy them, are people without money. The only people that believe that success will bring them peace are people without success. You, you talk to anyone who has achieved what they wanted to achieve, and when they're honest with you, they'll go, that's all right, that's cool. I mean, I'd rather be super wealthy than super poor, certainly. But it comes with all sorts of stuff. You know, success isn't, you, you always want more. You know, I was watching the, watching the World Series and Cardinals win the World Series, and, and that's, that's all well and good. And, and, and I'm, I'm looking at them freaking out and cheering and hugging each other. And, and it's, it's so fun to watch grown men millionaires act like 12 year olds that won the Little League World Series. It's the same response. And it's fun, it's great, and I, and I appreciate that. And, and, but very quickly, Um, the the commentators the the reporters will go how are you feeling which is the stupidest question but good right like what how do you answer that uh but but very quickly the question turns to can you repeat can you do it again next year you you just won this game what about next week I mean, I'm, again, ASU, I'm watching post-game stuff, and they're going, wow, you just demolished Colorado. How do you feel? That's so great. Okay, let's talk about UCLA. It's like, it's never done. There's always more. There's always the next thing. Money doesn't satisfy. Things don't satisfy. I mean, one of our great cultural poets, I think, said it best. Mo' money, more problems. So one of, the, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life, one of the best decisions I ever made, um, was right after I got hired at the church I was working at in San Diego. And we had, um, it was a growing church, large church, dynamic, great lead pastor, man of God, fantastic situation. And I was 22 when I got hired. And one of the best decisions I ever made was I, 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 shortly after I got hired, I went to his assistant, and I said, Debbie, um, whatever Miles needs, whatever Pastor Miles needs, I'm your guy. He he needs someone to to pick him up the airport at two AM, someone to get him water to open his Bible, whatever he needs, I'm your guy. I'll do it. I'm single, I got nothing to do. You just you tell me what you need. That was the best decision I ever made. For the next three years. I, I traveled with him everywhere, I've sat in on all kinds of meetings, I, I opened his Bible lots of times, I, um, I, I got to sit in the room while he's meeting with Billy Graham and Bill Hybels and Erwin McManus and a bunch of other pastors who you don't know and don't matter, but, but it, it was an experience to be able to observe, not, not so much experience myself, but observe what would I say this with a grain of salt, what would generally be considered for many the apex of my profession. Big church, lots of notoriety, get to travel, uh, speak at conferences, write books, meet all the other influential guys. I I got to observe it as a 22, 23, 24-year-old. And I I had the chance to realize it's not that big a deal. It's kind of cool. I'd rather have a large, thriving church than a really small, struggling church that was day-to-day, sure. But I saw the kind of sacrifices that it took to, to be that guy and to be in that position. I, I saw how much he had to travel, and I don't like to travel. I saw how much he had to be away from his family, and I don't like being away from my family. And I, I just saw it all and, and, and was able to go, you know what, what it actually is, it's not that cool. And it's certainly not worth all these sacrifices that that he has to make. And so I, I firmly believe that if I hadn't had that experience, I could never have followed God's call to leave here and go plant in San Francisco. Because I would see here the opportunity to get there. Because we're growing and blowing and it's all good and opportunities and and all that stuff. And I go, oh, I got to get there and I got to get a building and I got to get all these things. But I know what it takes to get there. And I know that when you get there, you're just kind of like, okay, what's next? Can I repeat? What about next week's game? Can I win again? There's no end to it. There's just simply no end and it's not worth it. But if I know that what really matters is, is knowing Jesus and that Jesus is better than everything, then that's the moment where God can begin to use me. Because I'm not wrapped up in in what I think is going to bring me the kind of satisfaction that my soul longs for. I know that I will find that only in Jesus. And Paul says as much. I mean, it's kind of amazing in verse 10. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain resurrection of the dead. He goes, even if it means suffering and death like Jesus, if in the end I get to be with Jesus, it's better. It's better than everything. That's when you reach the point that Jesus begins to use you. And, and, and we can become effective. And we begin to set our heart in the right place. And we're freed up from all the stuff that demands our attention. That's the moment where we begin to be effective. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul goes, because I know this is true, I got one goal. And and, in a picture of like a racer, a runner, coming to the finish line, he's straining ahead to cross that line to pursue the one thing. And and with the best motivation, gospel motivation you could ever imagine, he goes, why do I want that one thing? Why do I want to make it my own? Because Christ made me his own. Because, Because he claimed me and saved me and sacrificed for me. And and there's nothing better than knowing him and and being with him. There's nothing that that will bring about my soul's deepest desires other than him. And he goes, I get that, and I know that, and so there's only one thing I do, and that's heading in that direction. Forgetting what lies behind, meaning the sin and the good stuff. Going, what's past is past. What's future is what matters, and I'm pressing on to take hold of that which Christ, Christ has taken hold of me here's what you do. There's a fair amount of you here going, yeah, I still don't buy that. Okay. Here's what I want to do. As we transition into a response like we do every week, uh, I want you to do this thing. And, and maybe you believe in God, maybe you don't believe in God. Either way, there's no loss to you. Just, just ask God this. In your head, just say, God, show me yourself like you showed yourself to Paul. Reveal yourself to me like you revealed yourself to Paul. Because right now, I don't believe that nothing is better than you. I think i got a long list of things that are better than you. So show me what you showed Paul. That you are more gracious, you are more loving, you are more merciful, you are greater than all of these things. And that I should trust you for what my soul longs for and not in these things. Show me that. And and then some of you are going, I do buy that. I want to buy it more. I want to be sure that I buy that. So here's my challenge to you. In response time, and we have a moment to pray and think and meditate, I want you to tell God, you can take anything from me because I know you're better. Now, there, there's some fear that immediately goes, oh, geez, I don't know that I want to ask that because there's something in the back of our heads that goes, I, I have this feeling God's got this big hammer behind his back, and he's just ready to whoop us like he whooped Job, and I don't want him to whoop me like he whooped Job. Some of you are going, who's Job? He's a guy that God whooped in the Bible. And so um, <laughs> you're going, I, I know that he's just waiting for the moment, and if I ask him to do it, I, I know he just wants to take all this stuff from me. Let, let me just assure you of this. If there is one overriding metaphor for God in the scriptures, it's that of loving, caring father. And and maybe there's a bunch of you who didn't experience a loving, caring father. But God is that. And he wants to provide and to protect and to care for, to help you mature, and ultimately to be your soul's satisfaction. What every one of us are wired to long for, God knows that if we really and truly follow that all the way to its end, that end is him. But so many of us stop short, going this is enough, this is enough love, enough peace, enough joy, enough satisfaction, Well God's going, I could give you more, I can give you most, I can give you all your heart desires. Let's pray. Lord, uh, examples like Paul can be intimidating for us at times. He sacrificed so much had such a remarkable experience of you, had, had such a, an amazing turn in his life that, that sometimes we can go, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can be that guy. But you're not asking us to be Paul. You're asking us to be us. So my prayer is, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us to the same degree that you revealed yourself to Paul. That for us it would be unmistakable, and you're going to do that in different ways. You're not going to blind us all. But my prayer is that you would reveal yourself in in ways that are unmistakable, that we can just know nothing is better than you. Nothing is more gracious, more loving, more satisfying, more peace-giving than you. And Lord, I pray that we would respond like Paul, wholeheartedly, growing each and every day, taking the time to prepare, to mature, that we would grow in our faith every day, that we would grow in our dedication every day. Some days little, some days much. But Lord, we would keep our focus on you, remind ourselves every day, nothing is better than you. Nothing satisfies like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.